Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Last year, Canada made it official in legislation. By 2050, our carbon emissions are going to be net zero. But what does that actually mean? I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, I spoke to two electricity experts about the energy transition. Bruce Laurie is the president of the Ivy Foundation and chair of the Transition Accelerator, a pan-Canadian charity that works to build pathways to net zero. My second guest, Gretchen Bakke, authored The Grid, a history of electricity that's really the product of a decade's worth of research she conducted in Montreal while completing a PhD in cultural anthropology at McGill University. If there's a common thread to what both of my guests told me, it's this. We have a really hard time in Canada, in the United States, I guess in North America generally, building things, whether that's an oil and gas pipeline or a new wind farm or power lines. But we need to start planning how over the next three decades, we're going to move away from getting our energy by burning things to getting our energy from electricity, because that is going to require building things. We have the technology to do it, but the politics and the culture of the way we use energy currently stand in the way. As always, the interviews are edited for clarity and brevity. Hey, Bruce, thanks a lot for joining me on Down to Business. Yeah, my pleasure, Gabe. So I want to talk to you about the challenges that lie ahead for Canada's energy transition and the move away from fossil fuels. Like a lot of other countries, we set all these goals to get to net zero by 2050. And to do this, it's going to require a huge change in our energy usage patterns so that instead of burning things like gas or coal or oil, we'll rely much more on electricity flowing through wires. And I wanted to ask, what are the main challenges in that transition? The challenge I would say we have right now is modernizing our electricity system that will allow for you know, an efficient and stable transition to a largely electrified economy. So if you look at the research, the, the, the thought is that up to 80% of what's currently powered by fossil fuel today by 2050 will be powered by electricity. But we don't really have the electricity system, and that's everything from distribution networks to the, the facilities that are on the poles at the end of your street to the transmission lines. And then, of course, the decarbonized electricity generation that's going to go into that system. Right. Okay, so like right now, I'm sitting looking out the window at some power lines, which presumably they somehow connect up to a power plant somewhere. Does anyone know how many more power plants Canada needs to build or how many more electric transmission lines we need to construct or the size of the investment? Yeah, I mean, we, we have a, a rough sense. And, and this is where really the, the importance of spending some time understanding this issue is, is really so critical. The rough sense is that we, we're going to have to double or triple the existing electricity system in Canada. So that means probably not doubling or tripling what you see in a city, but doubling or tripling a lot of the transmission capacity. And that means you've got to have bigger transformers, you've got to have more complex distribution networks, 
uh, a lot more transmission and a lot more physical generation of electricity. So whether that's from wind or solar or you know hydrogen or nuclear power plants, my line I use with everyone is it's going to be all of the above. Like we can't really sit around and have a debate about, oh, I like this and I don't like this and I like offshore wind, but I don't like onshore wind. I don't think there's time for that conversation any longer. Basically, what we need to do is facilitate the building of this stuff, you know, as quickly and efficiently as possible. And so the thought is that if we just take everything right now the way it is with our existing electricity system, our existing kind of, you know, parochial, provincial markets and politics, then we're going to need three times. If we do it smartly and we actually start creating markets where we can trade electricity and build integrated transmission lines and, you know, modernize the grid, then we'll probably be able to get away with doubling our existing electricity system. And the cost implications of that are enormous. Yeah. Just trying to think about what you were saying, I felt a little dizzy because I don't know anyone who really knows exactly where their electricity comes from. There seem to be like a multitude of players. That just seems like a logistical nightmare. Are we doing anything on this yet? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a very good question. Realistically, you know, we're going to have to start seeing significant declines. You know, our government and most of the governments in the world have committed to a 30 to 40 percent reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030 and then going net zero by 2050. And if you look at, you know, Canada, but not only Canada, it's very, very hard to get anything built these days. We've got people opposing transmission lines. You've got people, you know, like groups in, for example, in the United States that are opposing uh, hydroelectricity from Quebec going into major population centers like Boston or New York. But environmental groups in Maine and New Hampshire are blocking the ability to build those power lines. We know in Ontario, we've got people opposing the construction of wind and solar power facilities. We've got a huge movement trying to oppose nuclear power. We've got people you know, really upset about the site sea dam in British Columbia and opposing that. We're in the middle of trying to phase out coal all across the country. So if you can imagine, you know, just how difficult it is for someone who basically wants to try to build something and working in this complete morass of confusion and complexity and delay. And we just have to get over that way of operating and like fast. What about smart grids? What are they and how important are they going to be to this equation? Yeah, for sure. So um, everywhere that is using electricity, North America, the industrialized world, you know, has incredibly sophisticated software that manages second by second how much electricity is being used and how much electricity is being generated and making sure that the electricity gets to the endpoint. So, you know, we have an incredibly sophisticated system in Ontario, for example, run by the independent electricity system operator. So one one thing that we need to do is to look at models around the world where there are larger regions that are being coordinated. So basically, you're going to have almost, you can imagine, you know, kind of like shells that are, you know, concentric shells and you can, you know, keep pulling one apart and there's another one on the inside. So you've got the, the overarching big system that is going to have to be better coordinated and that's going to be at a regional level. And right now, many parts of the world do that really well. You know, Europeans trade electricity, you know, across the UK, Australia, that have big regional networks. And then in the United States, there's this large regional coordinated networks that connect all of the electricity systems in states. On Canada, we don't do a very good job of that. We have a lot of little isolated jurisdictions, you know, basically the provinces. And then smart grids are at an even smaller level. So that's where you're looking at how 
you know, say a city or region level, you've got things that are using electricity talking directly to things that are generating electricity and the software in the grid starts to self-manage to optimize the efficiency of the flow of electricity. So, you know, just one quick example, if you have an electric car and you have it plugged in, smart grid will determine when is the, the most optimal time to be taking electricity out of your car if you're not using it or putting electricity in your car when it's the cheapest electricity possible. So, and, and you know, you could frankly have fridges and air conditioners and all kinds of different electricity uses, either putting electricity in or using electricity at the best time. Yeah. This week, I was talking to a manager of an investment fund who's really bullish on oil right now. And oil right now, like it's more than $90 a barrel. So it's just an incredible turnaround from the start of the pandemic when it was close to an all-time low. What he said to me is that the thing about oil is that when oil prices get high, historically, producers would bring on more oil supply, but no one has been doing that. So oil's going to stay high because investors don't want to finance or fund big new oil projects. And so you're going to have tight supplies, which I guess is great if you're an oil producer in Western Canada, but it's terrible if you're trying to convince the world we have to cap emissions and stop climate change. And I wanted to ask you if you see any way of us getting out of this dynamic. Yeah, I mean, that is a tough one. And, you know, I think a lot of this conversation around climate change is really going to be the time scale of change. You know, we can't let, you know, sort of these short term disruptions take our eye off net zero by 2050. And there's going to be all kinds of people that'll figure out ways how to make money off of this. I think we're going to see still a number of years where oil prices will be high and the oil companies will be happy and they'll make a whole lot of money. What worries me at the other end of that is the extent to which suddenly, you know, the people that are investing say, okay, we made all our money, we're pulling out and these oil companies go bankrupt and we end up, you know, guess who's going to pay for all the cleanup? It's going to be the Canadian taxpayer who's paying for all the cleanup of all the gas wells and oil wells already been created. So, I really worry that if we don't have a long-term time horizon of planning around the transition of these assets, making sure that when these assets become stranded, they don't become liabilities for the Canadian taxpayer. Because it looks to me like the strategy right now of the oil industry is let's make as much money as we can for as long as we can and then you know shut down and walk away and leave the cleanup to the Canadian taxpayer because that's kind of the historic way of operating. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of money I know the government paid in the pandemic to help clean up orphan wells. One of the points that this fund manager was making to me is that by deterring people from investing in oil, you're setting up a crisis. Like you were talking a lot about transitions and making sure it's an orderly transition. Right now, energy prices are spiking. There have been some reports in Europe of energy shortages. Is that something that you worry about coming to North America? Yeah, I would say I'm, I'm not as worried about energy shortages. I mean, the you know, Europe situation is a combination of reliance on natural gas from Russia. And in some cases, there's shortages due with, you know, labor shortages in the UK and other parts of Europe and people unable to, you know, like physically be driving the trucks that carry oil and gas. So I, I would say in North America, I'm not so worried about shortages, but I, I am worried that we don't have a coherent, coordinated plan for, you know, how we build out the infrastructure that we need to 2050. 
So, you know, what that means is, you know, really looking at where are the areas in the country, obviously just kind of dividing it between east and west. So if we look at eastern Canada and Atlantic Canada, there's a huge opportunity to decarbonize our electricity, i.e., you know, get rid of the remaining coal and gas over time. And, you know, our our electricity system is already 83% decarbonized. So we have one of the cleanest electricity systems in the world. And we do have very sophisticated people and companies that, you know, are employed in the industry. So we need to be looking at it as a competitive opportunity for how do we help, for example, the Americans decarbonize their electricity system because they're, you know, they're over half coal still. So we can, I think, use our our capabilities, but it needs to be done in a coordinated way. So it's not just like Hydro-Quebec trying to do it on their own or an individual province. But if we look at the whole eastern region and how we can integrate Quebec, Atlantic Canada, Newfoundland, bringing Newfoundland's power online, and look at how we can actually help the U.S. decarbonize. And also because hydropower is the best, basically, battery in the world, so you can balance energy systems using hydropower. You know, if there's more hydroelectricity going into New England, for example, then it's going to be easier for Massachusetts and New York, who have huge commitments to offshore wind, to be able to bring that offshore wind online and use hydropower in Canada, you know, to balance the intermittent wind resource. But that takes some kind of functional governance structure and market rules and, you know, openness to market, you know, to trade across markets that will make that whole system work. Because right now it's um, it's not working. Yeah. I mean, we've gone through a lot of challenges now, like a lot of it about sort of how difficult it is to plan, right? How difficult it is to build new transmission lines. I think that also applies to mines, to, you know, to mine some of the metals and produce some of the metals that are needed to build electric vehicles. When you think about this orderly transition, given the conditions in the world as they exist, how how do you sort of think about the priorities in terms of what we need to do today, tomorrow, and after that? specifically around electricity. Yeah, sure. Well, I really think the our, our biggest priority is to start getting people sitting around a table or a number of tables to really think about what the electricity system needs to look like in 30 years and how do we get there? Because the, the investments that are made in electricity are investments that often last 20, 30, 40, 50 sometimes 100 years. And having, you know, politicians getting elected and flip-flopping and changing the policies every three or four years, you know, is simply not going to work. It's not serving us well right now. And then if you can imagine, you know, in each jurisdiction, you've got regulators, you know, provincial politicians, um, sometimes private power generators, public power generators, transmission operators. We, We essentially need to get those people in rooms across jurisdictions and say, okay, what is best for all of us? Because we know when you start to integrate an electricity grid, you get cheaper electricity, you get more reliable electricity, you get more resilient electricity, and you can decarbonize faster. So all the things that everyone wants to do come from better collaboration and better coordination. So I would say that's the number one priority, collaboration and coordination. Bruce, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, yeah, no, really, my my pleasure. That was Bruce Laurie, president of the Ivy Foundation, a private charitable foundation that supports policies that advance sustainability in Canada. I'll be right back with my next guest, Gretchen Bakke, a professor at Humboldt University in Berlin and author of The Grid, a history of sorts of the electrical system in North America.
Hi, Gretchen. Thanks for coming on Down to Business. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So you wrote a book about the grid. It's one of these topics that most of us don't really worry about. What made you think about writing about the grid? Well, I mean, I think most of us don't think about it because it usually works pretty well. The reason that I actually began working, researching the topic is because my hometown is in rural Oregon. Um, that's where I grew up. And what I saw was blackout after blackout after blackout after blackout until there was just this moment where just regular people who weren't radical in any way started to actually distrust the infrastructure. And they started to take action. And I felt like this was really a critical moment of distrust in something like you can't imagine, like distrusting the sewer system, you know, or distrusting the, I don't know, distrusting your heating system. And suddenly here it was, this electricity, which has been around for roughly a century, was called into question. Then it grew, I mean, could go on forever, but it grew into sort of a marvelous investigation into all kinds of changes that are happening to the electricity system today. Maybe can you just describe what you discovered? Yeah. So the the big thing is, and I think people do actually know this, is getting renewables into the electricity system. That is in many places not necessarily linked to taking fossil fuels, so coal and natural gas, out of the electricity system. We don't make much electricity out of oil. Rural communities will use diesel and islands will use diesel or oil to make electricity. But by and large, if you live anywhere on a continent, you were using 15, 20 years ago, principally coal and natural gas, then hydro and nuclear. These are the big energy sources. And they all have something in common, which is that they run best when they're running 24 hours a day. And there are people who run that system, who work for the utilities, who say, here's how much electricity we think we need. It's January. We know that it's going to be cold. We're going to produce this much electricity. And then the people who are using it and the, and the companies and the manufacturers, they're going to use that much electricity. Electricity always has to be balanced. How much is made and how much we use has to be essentially the same minute to minute then you start to add things like wind, where the wind is changing all the time, how much it blows. And then you start to add solar, and then you don't have electricity at night. And also it's changing all the time, and it's not happening in a big factory somewhere. It's happening spread out all over the place. So these things we can say our values are that we want to have more renewables into the electricity system, but the system itself is not designed to work the way those renewables work. Hydro is different, but the way that wind and solar work is just very counter to how the electricity grid was built. Right. And I want to stop a second. So we know that wind and solar are cheaper than coal, natural gas, and nuclear power. But what are the barriers? You hear a lot of people talk about exactly what you described, the sort of variability of wind and solar, how they're unreliable. How big of an issue is that? Um, the problem isn't the variability or even the fact that these distributed, so especially solar, that it's, we say distributed, it's everywhere as opposed to in sort of a factory format. Wind, it's often, it can be scattered, but it's often made in some sort of wind park. So in that way, it looks a little like a coal-burning power plant. It's a lot of electricity coming from one place. But then variable, it just means that it's more when the wind blows harder and less when the wind blows less hard. And the way that the electricity grid was designed was... It, and this was 100, 120 years ago, was that control over the grid or sort of planning on the grid would happen on, produ on the production side, and then the variability would happen on the use side. So we, the humans, were kind of the crazy bit. You know, you go into the bathroom at 3 o'clock in the morning, you turn on the light, and that electricity has to be made somewhere. Or everybody comes home from work and opens their refrigerator 
23 times in an hour and a half period of time, all that electricity has to come from somewhere. And so we were the variable part. And the grid is designed so that there's always enough electricity for us. And this is the North American grid. This is not universally so, but the North American, U.S. and Canadian grids were designed so there would always be enough power no matter how much we wanted to use and whenever we wanted to use it. And what happens when you start to put variability on the production side is that you have to start controlling how people or when people are using electricity. And this is a totally different idea about an infrastructure that somehow we have to now think or know something about our usage patterns. And that's really new. And the system isn't built for that. So we have to change not just the technology, but also the way we think about the technology and also how we interact with the technology. But you say to somebody like, hey, you know, it's the middle of the night, you're using solar, maybe you shouldn't turn your power on, and they immediately get really angry. <laughs> so part of it, part of it is habit, right? Part of it is just our, we're, we're three or four generations or five generations into electricity just there. That it was built so that we would have this kind of freedom of use so long as you could pay. And now we're saying we what we want is something clean. And yet then the system actually has to be built differently, including our place in it, in order for that transition to be made. So are you saying we're going to have to be much more conscious about when and how we use electricity? Either we have to be more conscious about when and how we use electricity, or that consciousness has to be built into our machines. Um, and when people talk about something like uh, the Internet of Things, that's saying to a machine like, hey, you need to be able to look at what's happening with electricity right now, this very instant on the grid and decide whether or not to turn on or off or to run at full power or to run at half power. And that usually comes as a price signal. So as the machines begin to interact, you can, for example, press the button to turn your dishwasher on and your dishwasher says to the grid, like, hey, how much does it cost right now? And the grid says back, it costs really a lot of money right now because actually it's seven o'clock and everybody is doing everything with electricity at this exact moment. But you can turn on later if you want to, and it'll cost way less. And then your dishwasher goes on at three o'clock in the morning. So there is this next layer, which is the technological and computing capacity that we have right now because we've had electricity for 120 years. We've built our world around that. Assuming we want a clean grid, how far away do you think we realistically are from having the sort of smart capacity and technology that you're describing? Yeah, so there's a lot of things happening simultaneously on the grid. We're a lot closer than a lot of other industries are in terms of decarbonization, if you want to talk about it in these sort of general terms, in terms of not relying on fossil fuels anymore. In industries? In industries, yeah. Yeah, so the electricity system. Okay is a lot closer to decarbonization than other industries. Other industries being like cement or whatever. Yeah, cement or transport or manufacturing, making steel, building houses, heating, all of these things. And so the say I first started researching the book in 2007, and there was a lot of panic at that point in time that if any renewables were added to the grid, the grid would just crash down. It wouldn't work anymore. And then that kind of got worked out. And then there was a lot of panic because there was all this fear that the utilities would go under, that they would go out of business, or they simply wouldn't be able to be profitable anymore, even to maintain the sort of staff that they had had. The U.S. has a lot of for-profit utilities. It's mostly public utilities in Canada, but in, there was a panic about that. 
And then this sort of electrification wave came where we're suddenly like, oh, but maybe we'll all get big, big screen TVs and maybe we'll start plugging in our cars and maybe we'll start plugging in our cigarettes, you know, and, um, and then the utilities were like, oh, it'll be okay. And so what we've seen are these waves of kind of worry and reform and worry and reform and worry and reform. And all of those things now for 20 years essentially are being slowly resolved and more and more renewables are coming into the electricity system. So if we're just looking at making electricity without fossil fuels, we're well on our way. And Canada itself has one of the cleanest grids, especially compared to the United States. So basically we need to integrate these two for the benefit of both of them. What's stopping that from happening? Well, there's a giant border in the way. (laughs) (laughs) This is the main problem. We sell our oil to them. Yeah, but the the problem with a grid is that you have to have a wire. There is no wireless transmission of electricity, more than about, I don't know, a foot. That's what you can do, maybe a meter. So if you want to build over a border, you actually have to build, put a wire in. Coal, you can move by train, can move by ship, right? But you, if you want to put in a pipeline, you get the same kind of resistance as you get to a power line. Um, there's something about this building that is a problem. The second problem is cultural. And you see this even in Canada. You have all this hydro in um, Quebec, and you have all of this nuclear in Ontario. And then suddenly you've got all this wind in the, in the center of the country. And all of these things could work together really, really well to create a carbon-neutral electricity system in Canada. But you have to negotiate across these provincial boundaries. So there's governmental political problems. There's decisions being made province by province. If you're talking about the U.S. and the Canadian border, then there's all of these national priorities, which are quite different regulations, all of these things. So there's a lot of norming of regulations that has to happen, a lot of politics that has to be dealt with, and then there's infrastructure that needs to be built. And this just makes things hard even if it's a no-brainer. And one of those no-brainers that was really clear and present about three years ago was you have all of this wind power in upstate New York and you have all this hydro in Quebec. And these two things, they balance each other very, very well, which is to say, if the wind stills, you can actually quite easily adjust a hydroelectric dam to produce more electricity way more easily than you can adjust a coal-burning power plant, for example. So it makes a lot of sense that you would put these two things together. Yet there's a, there was this border in the middle, and it was just making it so hard for anybody to just marry these two forms of electricity production and then suddenly have a ton of reliable, renewable power on the grid. Right. And it continues to be a problem, right? In November, there was a proposal to build a new transmission line through Maine to bring Quebec's hydroelectricity into the northeastern U.S., and it didn't go through. And I guess one of the interesting things I've learned, I've taken, is that energy is politics, and it's hard to build oil and gas pipelines, but maybe for different reasons. But similarly, it is also hard to build new energy transmission lines. And you know, a lot of people don't want these things in their backyard. It is hard to do it. Is there anything we can do differently given the politics around these? We need to start to think at all of these different scales and how to knit them together. So it's not just the nation, the United States and the nation, Canada, or the province, right, Manitoba and the province, Ontario, and how these things have to integrate either east to west or north to south, but also that you can have a hospital in a community is making electricity renewably, has a large battery system because they need to back themselves up. 
and is serving as a kind of hub to a bunch of houses that have solar panels on the roof. And that that then is also integrated into a larger provincial electricity network. And so the reforms that need to happen in order to get us to a a reliable, renewably powered grid need to be happening at all of these different scales. They need to be happening at the community scale, at the neighborhood scale, at the community scale, at the municipal scale, then in the links between urban and rural, and then in the links between provinces, and then in the links between nations. So it's not just big electricity lines that matter. It's actually beginning to understand how you can integrate both vertically and horizontally or east to west, north to south at these almost the continental level. And that's just a new way of thinking. It's not hard from a technological point of view, but it is hard from an imagination point of view, very hard from a political point of view. Well, it's uh, when you read about it, it's tens of billions of dollars of savings. It could be great for the Canadian economy if we could get our energy into the U.S., but it does seem like again, the politics of doing that so far have been too great to actually achieve. Yeah. And I think even if we forget about the U.S., if we just sort of pretend it's not even there and just look at Canada, there is so much work that could be done in terms of integrating Canada in order to move the entire nation toward a renewable or carbon-free, if we keep nuclear in the mix, which I think in Canada is going to happen to have a carbon-free electricity system that crosses all of the wealth of energy supplies besides very, very, very dirty oil and gas in the Canadian system. And that's taking away even just not even thinking about the money that can be made by selling that same set of integrated power sources to then this giant market to the South. Yeah. So in summary, it sounds like the strengths are technology is there. We have the resources. It's just a matter of taking advantage of this opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting. I mean, this is this is one of the things. It's like when you look at the politics, it's like, oh, dear Lord, this is impossible. Nothing is ever going to happen. You know, we cannot move anything or anybody. But when you talk to engineers, electrical engineers, they are so excited. They have a good problem. It's really interesting. The technology works. And they are just putting things together, testing things trying stuff out. You have these sort of suburbs that become test cases. You have houses that are test cases. You have off-grid communities, which are now test cases. And how things might be networked, how things might detach from the larger grid and run independently, all of the technical pieces of it is just like the happiest people in the world right now are people, are electrical engineers. And so it's important to remember that the politics might be really hard, the money piece might be really hard, getting building large infrastructure might be really hard, and yet nevertheless, it's actually a delightful project. And I will say, you can come back to me in 2070, but I will say that in 2070, we're going to have this done. Well, what a wonderful way to end this. I want to thank you for coming on the show to talk. Yeah, an absolute pleasure. That was Gretchen Bakke, and that's this week's episode of Down to Business. Thank you for listening and for supporting Down to Business by sharing episodes and rating us on your podcast app. Thanks to Bryce Hall, who executive produced this show and composed and performed the original music, to Pamela Heaven for web support, and all the editors at the Financial Post. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll be back next week. But until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.